You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 20th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. It's Sunday the 20th of October. This is Monocle's House View. Today... Order! Order! The eyes to the right, 322. The nose to the left, 306. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson lost an historic Brexit vote in Parliament yesterday. We unpick what happened, examine the implications and look ahead to what comes next. We'll also have a flick through the Sunday papers too, so do join us for Monocle's House View, starting now. Good Sunday morning from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Joining me for 30 minutes of intelligent discussion today, the political analyst Carol Walker and from London's Evening Standard newspaper, the defence editor Robert Fox. As the British Parliament sat on a Saturday for the first time since the Falklands War, this is what happened in Westminster yesterday. The best thing for the UK and for the whole of Europe is for us to leave with this new deal on October the 31st. And uh, to anticipate the questions that are are coming from uh, the benches opposite, I will not negotiate a delay with the EU. Neither does the law compel me to do so. I will tell uh, our friends and colleagues in the EU exactly what I have told everyone in the last 88 days that I've served as Prime Minister, that further delay would be bad for this country, bad bad for our European Union and bad for democracy. That was Boris Johnson in Parliament yesterday. Carol... Walk us through what this is all about. Well, it was an extraordinary day. I was there on the green outside Parliament for many hours yesterday and we were all geared up as Boris Johnson had hoped that this was going to be his do-or-die moment, Uh, the occasion when he was going to put the new deal, which he'd negotiated this week with EU leaders to Parliament, and he was hopeful that with the backing of some of the hardline Brexiteers in his party, he just might be able to come up with some huge symbolic victory in terms of getting Parliament to back his deal. But this is being Brexit. It's never that straightforward. Up pops Oliver Letwin. He's a, a former cabinet minister, described uh, in by one of the sketch writers as uh, the stupidest clever person in Parliament. <laughs> And uh, he came up with an amendment which said that the Parliament should not approve the deal until all the legislation which actually enacts the deal, puts it into British law, had been passed. And that amendment was duly passed. That meant that Boris Johnson was up against another deadline which had been set by another group of his opponents, which said that if he hadn't reached a deal and got the approval of Parliament by 11 o'clock last night UK time. Then he had to send a letter to the EU requesting a delay. Now, Boris Johnson, you heard him there, said once again that he would not go to the EU and negotiate a delay. So what we got 
very late last night, right up against the deadline, is he sent a photocopy of the letter, the format of which had already been set out in that rebel legislation, along with another accompanying letter saying, by the way, I really don't want any kind of delay and I think it would be very bad for both the UK and the EU. So we've had another cycle of up, down, round, another delay. And it now looks as though Boris Johnson will try to bring that deal back to Parliament tomorrow and try to get MPs to vote on it and then move on to trying to rush through the legislation. Is it up to the Speaker to decide whether that can be brought? Because, of course, the, the terms of the deal of the, of the bill that he tried to introduce yesterday have not changed at all. Can he bring back exactly the same thing to Parliament? Well, that is uh, a very good question. And indeed, we have seen throughout this process, John Burko, the Speaker of the House of Commons, who is supposed to be impartial, making it very clear that he's prepared to use all kinds of manoeuvres to allow rebel MPs to have their say. And it is certainly possible that he could say that the principled vote tomorrow that is essentially the same motion that was put down on the order paper on Saturday and you can't do that twice over. In which case, I think what will happen is that Boris Johnson will simply put down the legislation, the withdrawal agreement bill, and the first principled vote on that, what's called the second reading vote in parliamentary language, will in effect become a vote in principle on that deal. So one way or another, it looks as though probably uh, on Monday or Tuesday of this week, we will get that big vote on the deal. And I think the one thing that Boris Johnson's team will take from yesterday is when you look at the numbers and the way people voted and what they said publicly, it does look just about possible that he could pull off a historic victory. Now, before we go on to reactions and what might happen next, there are a couple of really great speeches, I thought, uh, in the House yesterday. Uh, Keir Starmer, Robert, absolutely laid out the pros and cons of both deals. It was a forensic dissection of, of, of Theresa May's deal and Boris Johnson's deal. Yes, and what uh, emerges from this, I don't know whether Carol would agree, is that I think that Boris is a much harder Brexit and it is a much greater detachment uh, than where May was. Now, where Starmer ends up in all of this is going to be extremely interesting because uh, looking at it from the outside, uh, the march and so on, and the very ugly scenes as we heard of people barracking in a very nasty way, uh, protagonists of either side afterwards, were dealing with, gosh, didn't we know it in June 2016, with a very, very divided country. One thing I did take away from Boris's speech, Boris Johnson's speech, is that he at last is recognising it in a curious way that it seems to me, uh, again, as not being inside the Westminster bubble, that may actually, by temperament, by character, by outlook, never fully recognised. This is st still an extremely difficult one because whatever uh, uh, else wasn't plain yesterday, one thing was we're going to have to have a general election possibly within six months. I don't think it'll be before Christmas. And they've got to be very, very careful. And as I say, as a voter, not uh, carrying a flag for any side... Be careful what you wish for, because if you go for a divisive people versus parliament, 
that is completely unpredictable because this is where I do have a certain expertise, which is in populist movements, movimenti, as the Italians call it, across Europe. Movements, popular grassroots movements, the kind of thing that we're hearing now with the double-down rhetoric that we're hearing from the ultra-Trump supporter, Republicans in the States, and we're hearing from the hardliners on both sides in the Brexit debate means that very often the leadership that kicks this off will be swallowed by it in the end. It is extremely unpredictable. It's by, it almost could be a question uh, as fundamental as do you really want Parliament in the form that, we're, that we've had it or are we going to be uh, you know, pulse-taking, going on to Twitter, having referendums on everything as if we're Switzerland and I don't sneer at Switzerland in that because in Switzerland the referendum system is part, part of democracy but if we have it here we could have anything. Capital punishment, uh, uh, racial issues, uh, welfare issues and I think we really are at a big, uh, a big turning point of which really with these debates and I think we're going to go on for a bit with this, we're merely in the overture. We're only, we barely got to the first act of this huge new development in British society and politics. I think that Robert is right, that there's a big danger of that. We do have a very divided society. I was struck how at the beginning of the debate yesterday when Boris Johnson made his statement about the EU Council meeting, he did strike a much more conciliatory and statesmanlike tone. And the whole nature of his pitch to MPs was... It's time to heal the wounds. It's time to unite the party. Of course, there are huge disagreements about his deal, but his pitch was very much, uh, it wasn't that rabble-rousing, um, take-on-all-opponents rhetoric that we have heard in the past. This was him saying, look, I'm prepared to work with people. I'm prepared to work with all sides of the House. And I think it is particularly important when you look at some of the other things that happened yesterday, of course, coinciding with this big debate in Parliament, there was a huge people's vote march. This was about a million people taking to the streets of London asking for a second referendum. That reached Parliament just at about the time that MPs were finally leaving Parliament. We saw several senior ministers being heckled, being jostled. Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is the leader of the Commons, was leaving with his young son. They were heckled and jostled. Um, another cabinet minister, Michael Gove, um, was had to be escorted by about a dozen police. And, and I should say, I know we're going to be talking a bit more about the papers in the moment. In a moment, but the Mail on Sunday, which is a very big circulation paper in the UK, its front page today has this. Big banner headline, The House of Fools, with pictures of Jeremy Corbyn, the opposition leader, Oliver Letwin, who brought that amendment yesterday, the Speaker of the House, John Burko, and Philip Hammond, another Conservative rebel. And, and I think those sorts of banner headlines, that personalising of the debate is a very, very dangerous route to go down. And it does seem to me that it has now been positioned as a, as a class war with Boris Johnson, Etonian educated, uh, as man of the people. I mean, many of the papers that are, are criticising that this huge march, as you say, uh, as, as a load of middle class people out there. And I wonder at what point it became a crime to be middle class and engaged with politics and the whole way that this is playing in exactly as you say, Robert, with, with, the, with the kind of this echo of of Europe's populist movements. Well, also populist movements 
go back a heck of a long way from the revolt of the slaves. Now, don't, I don't, um, I'm not being silly about this. We're seeing, for instance, the, the name of the rose, uh, a period of, uh, I love actually in, in, in Italy, which has been the, 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 the setting of brilliant essays, including The Seventh Seal by Ingmar Bergman. Why it applies today is in moments of great social and economic disruption, you get this breaking of politics. And this is where the moment is extremely dangerous. Um, In old-fashioned sort of Marxist terminology, I would say, although everything is much better off than it ever was, it's almost the Kerensky moment of 1917. It almost looks, the, 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 the febrile nature of this, and particularly if you look on social media, it, look, it, it looks pre-revolutionary. Mm. It looks as if something is coming. And this is where the populist voice is extraordinary because it is just slogans. It is things like the male uh, headline, you know, the voice, uh, uh, the, 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 the enemies of the people, the house of fools, uh, we're referring to the judges and so on. And I think that this is one of the things that has been so striking about the whole Brexit drama is that how much constitutional and social reform is required because, uh, as we saw with the twin things, the twin populist phenomenon, uh, phenomena of 2016, very much related, um, Brexit and the rise of Trump. It's the left behinds. Mm. And the voice of the left behinds is very, very angry. Um, and that's why I think that um, we're, we're in a very dangerous moment. And I'm very worried that we may be in a cycle of referendums. Uh, I won't call them referenda, but uh, the fact is that, you know, when people like Rees Mogg and Bill Cash say it's a once in a generation <coughs> vote, this is obviously, sorry, psychologically, demographically, it's nonsense because opinions change and shift so much according to circumstances. And, th- and this is where we are. I fear two things. I think we're going to have another very difficult and indecisive uh, 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 referendum, popular vote again. And I could foresee going through a cycle of general elections now because we just cannot get a workable government. We've, not, we've got a zombie parliament and almost, although Boris, I agree, is a complete uh, breath of fresh air in terms of his speaking, his approach, uh, his warmth uh, compared with May before I mean, even even Cameron. But it is a zombie government. It's got no majority. Mm. Uh, I, would, so I was just going to say, I think it's very clear that we're going to be into an election within the next few weeks, if not months. Um, in terms of a second referendum, I, I'm not convinced there are the numbers in Parliament at the moment to get that through. But I did just want to, on a lighter note, pick up on your point about um, people mocking these middle-class people's vote marchers. Uh, and there was a, a, a glorious sense where many of those who took to the streets yesterday were prepared to be a little bit self-mocking. There was a, a, a banner picked up uh, by by one of the reports, you can take our camembert, but you can't take our country. Uh, and the, I would like to mention some of the dogs that, of course, this being Britain, people had to take their dogs on the, on the march. And my prize for the 
best-dressed canine on the march was to the border terrier wearing a little coat that, that read Borders Against Borders. <laughs> so I think that in the midst of all the, the fury and the shouting and the undoubtedly high emotions running right across this debate, um, it is wonderful to see that some people manage to keep a, at least a sense of humour. Uh, on, a, on a purely uh, practical level, uh, what happens next? As we know, Parliament <laughs> meets again tomorrow. He may or may not be able to table this again. And then what? Well, I think what is interesting is that the EU side have made it clear that they're not going to rush to do anything about this extremely half-hearted They've got too many problems, by the way, of their own. Request, yeah. exactly. And yeah. the, now... As we know, um, many across Europe are not keen on a further delay. Emmanuel Macron in France in particular, his spokesman yesterday said that they did not think that it would be a good idea to have uh, a further delay. They are going to sit tight and it looks as though they could sit tight until perhaps something like the 28th of October, which, as a reminder, is just three days before this Brexit deadline of Halloween, October the 31st, when Boris Johnson has said, do or die, the UK is going to leave the European Union. So in a sense, Boris Johnson has just about still got the possibility of getting a deal through. If he can get a vote in principle uh, in on either Monday or Tuesday. Yes, of course, it's going to be hugely difficult because he's got to get this. People Pe are changing their minds, though. People are changing their minds. It could still go either way. I've gone beyond predicting <laughs> parliamentary votes. He's got a very, very difficult, very, very complex piece of legislation to get through, which sets out in all its gory detail all the complicated elements of this deal he struck with the EU, all those very controversial arrangements for Northern Ireland on customs, on regulations, on how there is consent for it, on how much money is going to be paid, uh, on the rights of EU citizens, all kinds of things. Every individual clause will have to be debated and people will put down all kinds of amendments, including, I'm sure, people say one. It's very, very difficult, but is just possible that he could say to MPs the one way of avoiding no deal is let's just get this through in the next two weeks. Carol, can I ask you, if you forgive me, how much, how good do you think they are? This is the inner circle of Boris and it's particularly Boris, not so much go, but people like Dominic Cummings, how good are they, and, and Mark Sedwell indeed, at working the back channels? Because I think this is going to be crucial now. Because one of the people that's emerged as really important, yes, we hear endlessly from Macron, and Macron has got enough problems of his own uh, as well. And actually, the, the, he's a fairly toxic commodity to a certain part, a very large part, actually, of the EU leadership. But somebody like Mr. Rutter, in, in the Netherlands, and, and Varadkar himself has played a binder, but he's an interested party. The Dutch are serious, are a very important economy. They have the ear of Merkel. They have the ear of, ear of the Scandies. I mean, are they working? He came out from, from, the, from the Boris summit saying some very, very interesting things. And it's as if the, the, the channels really were talking about, now, what can we do with this? It can't just be, if they give an extension, there will be conditions, and there will be very, very severe conditions. And I hope that they're working with Mark Rutter on that, about and his team, because he, he will carry the sensible Nordic nations, the, uh, the, the Danes, the Swedes, and, and, and so on with it. And I think that that's one way forward. But I, I, I think that, uh, you, you know, the, the, the thing that is so 
absent from the screaming headlines of either either side is a bit of bit of sheer pragmatism about this. Well, I think that what they've got in David Ford, who is this yes. uh, key negotiator with David the Fro- EU, D- David Frost, Frost I yeah, should yeah, say, yeah, David yeah, Frost, yeah, uh, yeah, forgive me, yeah. um, uh, is someone who does know what he's doing and who is widely respected. And what I'm hearing is that um, for all the bluff and bluster, they do feel that from the Boris Johnson government, they are getting uh, a clarity of destination, which they never got from Theresa May. And I think if they have a, a clarity of destination, if they have this sense that, look, here is someone who is very keen to bring this thing to a conclusion. And although there has been all this talk in the past about how sad they are about the UK leaving, I think they are now resigned to the fact Mm. that Brexit probably in some form or another is going to happen. And perhaps it would be better to to get through this withdrawal process so they can get onto the negotiations about the future relationship. So I, I, I think the channels are open. They did, after all, lead to a breakthrough which nobody expected last week. And I think that is a sign that they uh, can be productive. But I think the overriding thing is firstly, that clear objective from the Johnson government. And secondly, just this weariness with the whole process and the desire to at least move on from the withdrawal phase to the next phase, which is many, many months of negotiation about the future relationship. Mm. Very important point, I think, that Carol has made. It's absolutely vital. It should be hammered home. Forget it, Daily Mail. Forget it, Guardian uh, uh, and Observer. The thing that was so bad with Cameron and his inner court and May, is that they were rotten negotiators. They, I've known and met some of those people involved, and they seem to have no idea. They seemed absolutely amateur. And when you get somebody who knows how to talk and train, like David Frost, actually, curiously, the Cabinet Secretary, who's there very reluctantly, I guess, Mark Sedwell, and I've seen him in action in Afghanistan amongst a huge and complicated uh, and very divided alliance of 64 nations. He can do it, these sort of people, and it is absolutely trading. And I know... This is a side to Boris. Boris, I know, I've known because we've sat next to each other for many a year at the the, the Telegraph. He's a warm character. He does real conversation. He talks to people. He listens to people. And I think that that has been a huge change. But we've, as he pointed out in his speech, he's only been prime minister for 88 days. What on earth? earth was going on. I think they put diplomats in who were diplomats and they weren't very, very good negotiators at all. I think we must move on to the papers. But actually, it's sticking with with the same theme because The Observer says Johnson faces fresh court action uh, after rejecting the delay to Brexit. Now, of course, we do know that he's basically complied with the law by sending this photocopy of the letter. Is this going to end up in court again tomorrow, Carol? It will. Uh, It's already um, due to be before the court of session in Scotland tomorrow. Um, This is a, a... court that has already been looking at whether Boris Johnson... uh, 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 What happened was that a Scottish nationalist MP, Joanna Cherry, went to the court and said Boris Johnson should be forced to comply with this Ben Act, which is what Boris Johnson's team like to call the Surrender Act, which forces uh, a delay. And Joanna Cherry went to the court last week and said, you've got to force him to comply. They said, we haven't reached the deadline. He said he's not going to break the law. She will now be back in court tomorrow 
arguing that sending an unsigned photocopy of a formatted letter uh, accompanied by another letter completely contradicting it is not complying fully with the law. So, yes, it's quite possible he could be found to be in breach of the law again in the Scottish courts tomorrow. Um, now, uh, Robert, you were comparing uh, Johnson with Trump and, and and the way that both men operate. And, of course, Trump has done very many shocking things, particularly in the last week. But the most shocking, of course, was to withdraw US troops uh, from Syria. Uh, many of the papers pick up on the Kurds and what's happening there. And I know that that's of particular interest to you. Well, I'm surprised actually so little, but it's because of, because of Brexit. So I'm not I'm not I'm not dissing my journalist colleagues, friends. That, um, but the Kurd story is absolutely huge because uh, I was reading the latest pronouncements from uh, President Erdogan last night, and he said he's going on. He has got six observation posts inside the Syrian border, uh, and he intends to smash. Uh, is to his terms, the Kurdish fighters. And this uh, is going to produce a lot of difficulty. That is the fact on the ground. There are all kinds of things. There are reports of atrocities, use of white phosphorus and so on, um, which is important, will have to be looked at. He is a man in a hurry. I think he's doing it. He's playing very, very strongly, Erdogan, to a domestic audience. And this is becoming clear in the coverage uh, uh, over the weekend. I think he's going to try and go to the polls because where he's been losing early elections again. Um, the, the, the move around is very difficult. I think that the papers have been over the top a bit about, you know, putting Russia and Assad in charge. They don't have the means to do it. Russia doesn't have many ground troops, if at all. They're mostly military police um, there. But the big story, as you say, is the pullout without consulting allies and the the withdrawal of um, US troops and with it, therefore, British, Canadian and French, which has done really, it's almost a torpedo below the waterline for NATO and NATO solidarity. And this is of huge consequence. It's one of the biggest volt facets, uh, 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 unconsulted withdrawals that ha- there has been in the history of the alliance since 1947-48, when, uh, when, when it all began. And uh, for Britain, which is not getting on too well with its European allies for the reasons we've just been discussing in the first half of the programme, it is going to be very, very difficult indeed because British, I don't think, uh, people like, excellent people like Mark Urban, uh, Quentin Somerville have pointed out the British have been very much involved in the training of the YPG, Mm. uh, assessed by Janes now as one of the best guerrilla armies in the world. And now they say, what, what do we do with the people that, that we've left behind? We've got a protectorate arrangement with Jordan and also with the Kurdish entity in, in, in Iraq. So what does Britain do in this? Does it allow the Kurds, sorry, the, the Turks to roll over uh, the Kurdish population there? It is of huge consequence. But what is so interesting for Trump is that it's beginning really to peel away the traditional... Republican leadership, mm. because we've had two really big beasts in, in, in common parlance denouncing him over this. Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham saying, you do not do this with allies. And it shows um, really uh, a thing that's been quite clear. And it came when John Bolton was pushed out as national security advisor. The whole foreign policy advisory system and intelligence advisory system has been completely 
hollowed out in yeah. this chaotic, very personal rule that Trump has been conducting. Uh, and of course, another kind of sidebar to all of this is what happens to all these children that have been found in the camps. And that's also reported in the papers today, Carol. Yeah, absolutely. What you've got now is something of a vacuum uh, in this area, given the rapidity of the US withdrawal. Um, the Observer picks up on a, a story that um, others, including the BBC, have been reporting about, which is that British officials have taken the first steps towards bringing back children who've been left stranded in Syria by liaising directly with agencies on the ground to try to identify some of the youngest children who are simply trapped out there. But I think the point about this is that this is at best, a small handful of the vast numbers of former IS fighters. 80,000. Uh, 80,000 fighters, uh, Robert tells me authoritatively. Um, many of uh, the their brides, many of the women who have gone out there, who are themselves mm. very, very much radicalised. Some of their children, and some of these children who, of course, are reaching only teenage years, have been totally indoctrinated with this IS view of the world. And there are tens of thousands of these people out there. And I think one of the huge dangers that emerges from this is, look, we've seen this extraordinary international effort to prevent IS creating its own caliphate, its state out there. And there is a big danger that as everyone tries to wash their hands of these, because for understandable domestic reasons, nobody wants to bring all these people back, put them on trial, try to deal with all these radicalised groups, um, that that you've got another huge problem festering there. Carol, Robert, I know that this conversation is going to continue off air, but we have to we have to end now. Thank you so much uh, to, to both of you, Carol Walker and to Robert Fox. And that's all for today. Our supervising producer was Ben Rylan, our researcher was Sam Johannes, and our studio manager was Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>